Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, grab it. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Yes, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. Uh, we're going to continue in our series uh, through the letters to the Thessalonians, which we have titled Hope Shaped Holiness. And if you are a guest, we normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say and not what I have to say. We want to come to God's Word. It shapes uh, every part of our worship gathering together because we want to be shaped and formed by Him and through His Word. So we come to submit to it uh, and to uh, offer our lives to uh, the Lord. If you are not a follower of Christ today, my prayer for you is that you see the glories of Jesus lived out in our lives and in how we worship Jesus together. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those uh, black hardcover Bibles in front of you and turn to page 1049. 1,049. Is anyone tired this morning? Is anyone tired? Are you worn out? Are you struggling to find the energy to keep going? Have you been sick this week? Have there been challenges at work this week? Have you struggled to sleep for multitudes of reasons? Are you tired? Let me ask it a different way. Are you tired of your sin? Is there anybody in the room who is frustrated? We keep fighting the same sins over and over and over again. Are we tired? Are we tired of watching the world and wondering, Christ, when will you come back? We enter our text today with the same feelings that I think the church and Thessalonica felt 2,000 years ago. If you remember, last week, we talked about a difficult subject, about the end times, and coming off of that passage now into these few verses, I think it helps speak to us, not just about are we worried about the future, but how do we live now? How do we continue and press on now? So, what we see here in Thessalonians chapter 2, here in the second letter, here's what we see. Paul seeks to encourage the Thessalonians with assurance of their salvation. Why? So that they will live according to it. If you're a disciple today, if you follow Christ, our goal here as a church is to make mature disciples. Not people puffed up with knowledge, not people uh, weighed down uh, by the world, but people who are following Jesus and looking more like Him. If you are worried and stressed and tired today, the assurance of our salvation is motivation 
for our perseverance. The assurance of our salvation is the motivation for our perseverance. We come this morning, maybe worn out, but we come this morning with full assurance that if we are in Christ, we have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about, and, and what we'll see later is an eternal hope encouragement. So my prayer for us this morning is that we are motivated to continue to press on despite the troubles of our heart, despite the anxiety that weighs us down, and despite the world that we see around us that's broken. I pray that you are encouraged this morning. So now what Paul does, we come off the hills of last week, which we understand that Jesus is going to win in the end. But Paul ends verses 9 through 12 talking about what Satan is doing. Satan is working in the world. He's doing things around us. But now Paul turns our attention away from, from our enemy into our good and gracious God, into his activity in the church, in you and in us. Now, coming out of last week, it could be easy for us to man the hatches, lock the doors, create the bunker, and just wait it out. Let's just wait. The world's gonna is doomed anyways. Let's just get into a bunker. Let's get our canned tomato soup and let's just live until it's all over. Let's just hunker down. But that's not what Paul tells us. In light of the reality of a God who's going to win, but an enemy who is fighting, Paul responds differently than we might. So what should we be motivated to do? What action should we take? Should we run for the hills because of the life that we live? Or should we press on and persevere and trust the Lord together? What are we motivated to do? If we look here in our passage, we have three actions that we're motivated to do. Number one, be secure in God's salvation. Be secure in God's salvation. Look back there at verse 13. But we ought to thank God always for you. Right, Paul ends uh, this chapter thanking God for the Thessalonians. If you remember back in chapter 1, he does the same thing. He says we ought to uh, thank God for you. Remember, this is an ought out of gratitude. God is working in you. God is working in you. Now, this passage is connected all the way back to verse 3 of chapter 1. It, it kind of uh, makes a, a sandwich. It, it connects a chain of thought here. And Paul now returns to giving thanksgiving for these people. They are enduring affliction. They are not outsiders, the people who will perish before a good and righteous and loving God. But no, they are in the family of God. And they can trust this God. And as he, he began to encourage uh, their hearts against their affliction and against their worries and troubles, Paul now says, once again, I thank God for you. Why? Because God is working in you. 
And Paul writes a small section to stabilize the church body during, during hard times, during affliction, doubt, anxiety. But notice the tone of the passage. Paul is not panicking in any way, shape, or form. But why? Because Paul knows, he believes that this young church is indeed brothers and sisters. That they have a relationship with God. They have trusted in Jesus Christ. Look how Paul describes their relationship with God. Paul said in verse 13, Thank God who loves you, right? Brothers and sisters loved by the Lord. First and foremost, our church, any church's relationship with God is bound together in love. It is God's love that initiates our relationship, our salvation with Him. And love also is the foundation of our assurance. All aspects of our relationship are found in God's love. That God is love. That He has set His love on us. That He still loves us despite the sin that weighs us down. And that His love will never let us go. Love is the foundation not only of all reality, but of all Christian confidence and assurance. You may ask, how do I know God's love to be this way? When we look at the gospel, when we look at the scriptures, we are confronted with the truth of love. That our God loves us so much that he would send his own son into the world to die the death that we deserved. Paul says it in a different way in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. He says, for while we were still helpless... We bring nothing to the table. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us that while we will still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us when we could give nothing to him. And in fact, we were his enemies. God loved us in a way that cannot be imagined. It only can be told by him through his word that we are loved by God. So much so that Jesus came into the world, lived a perfect life, and then gave his life on the cross for you and me. That's the kind of love that we know from God. Well, may we not doubt his love in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of any circumstance. May we never doubt his love. So what does his love lead him to do? Continuing verse 13, it, it leads him to choose you. God chooses you. Because from the beginning, God has chosen you for Salvation. The same way that God chose Israel to be his people, God has chosen us to be his church. Israel did nothing to earn God's love. And in fact, God tells them in the Old Testament that it was actually you were the smallest nation. You were the weakest nation. And I chose you. They could bring nothing to offer to God. In the same way with us, God chooses us even though we bring nothing to the table. Now look at that phrase from the beginning. If you're following along in your Bibles, 
or in a scripture journal that we've handed out, uh, you might see there. there's a, a little note there. And if you look at the bottom uh, of your Bibles, there's some discussion on what, what should this be understood as. So I think some of your Bibles, if, if you follow the CSB, which is what I'm preaching from, it's going to say from the beginning. But I think it has a, a better understanding of as first fruits, that God chose a people as a harvest of first fruits for salvation. I think that's the better way for us to understand this. And that we are God's people chosen as the first people, maybe in Thessalonica, some of the first believers, first church, they could have that idea. But at the very least, God has chosen us as the first people, as the first beauty out of Christ's resurrection. And Jesus talks about this idea as well. He talks about the harvest, right? The people in the harvest need the good news of the gospel. So Jesus is using this idea in evangelism that there is a harvest to be had. God is working in the world to bring back a harvest. But notice this choosing has a purpose. God didn't just choose us for no reason. He's not doing things at random. Paul says we were chosen for salvation. This means he chose you to be saved. And remember, salvation in these two letters refers to future eschatological end-time salvation. Right? To be saved from the judgment and wrath of a good and righteous, loving and holy God. That we would be united with Christ in His presence forevermore. This is why God chose you. You will be saved from anything that comes. That God will right all the wrongs. In the world. But notice how he readies us for the future. It isn't like, hey, you're saved and everything's good, now I can do whatever I want. No, look at what Paul says. Through sanctification, by the Spirit, and through belief in the truth. Sanctification, which we talked about, is the process of becoming holy, right? Looking more like Jesus, loving, serving, giving, growing, having a relationship with the Father. Through Jesus. And then Paul says, through the sanctifying work of his spirit. Right? It's the, it's the goal of our salvation that we look more like Jesus. It's ongoing. Right? Understand, it starts whenever you profess faith in Jesus, it started right there. You are now a saint in Christ. That's why Paul writes to these letters and he, he often opens to the saints at whatever church they write to because you in Christ are a saint, but you are also growing as a saint. Sanctification is not a second act of God. No, it is the act that God does in you. He is saving you for the future, sanctifying you. And notice how we are sanctified. Paul says, by the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit, God, the third person of the Trinity. He makes us holy. There is not salvation apart from the Spirit's work in us. And the Spirit makes us a holy people. All right, the prophets, they prophesy about this. Jeremiah Ezekiel. God said, I'm going to get, I'm going to write my law on, on our hearts in the future. I'm going to put my Spirit within them. Talking about us. So much so that we would obey God. That we would no longer have parts of stone, but we have parts of flesh that we now are enabled to live out God's love. 
that we are actually could be called holy. That's what salvation is about. We are set apart for God's purposes and are walking in God's ways. Sanctification is a part of the believer's life, which is why we talk about making mature disciples. It's the process of us becoming more holy. And understand that God's spirit is the down payment of our future salvation. If God has given his spirit to you now, then it's going to he's going to get you to the end. We can trust him. And that should provide security on this journey that we live. When we find ourselves tired and worn out. May this encourage us. So we, Paul says that we are saved by the Spirit and sanctified by the Spirit. But he also says that we are saved through belief in the truth. That is faith in the gospel. Right, we follow the truth in our everyday lives. That we understand the gospel. That we hold on to it. That we believe it. The gospel saves us when we hear it and respond to it. And then it sanctifies us daily. You've heard me say this phrase and we'll keep saying this phrase. We never graduate from the gospel. It is Christianity 101 and it's Christianity 10,001. There is no classes in between. It is the gospel that has saved us and it's the gospel that is sanctifying us. The very fact that God chose us with all of our sins and all of our weaknesses should assure us of his love and future salvation. If he chose us to begin with, with all of our problems, all of the wars, all the bad things, why would he ever turn his back on us now? If God saved you in the mess that you were in, whether that's when you were five or when you were 50, you were still in a mess because you were, sin you were a sinner separated from God and going to receive his wrath. So you were in a mess. But now, if God chose you then, why would he leave you now? Looking at our progress and our growth and look at how we live differently growing maturity, whether it's been two years or 20 years. Why would he leave you now? Paul says he won't. He absolutely will not. And I also want to take just a moment, and I want to focus on the process of salvation and sanctification. Right? We need God's spirit and faith in the gospel. Right, church, we must continue to share the gospel with our friends and our co-workers and our family members, but we cannot talk or argue people into salvation. So notice what's needed for us to be, just be faithful in our evangelism. Because apart from God working, you're not going to talk anybody into salvation. Why do I say that? One, you need God's Spirit working in the process. And number two, you need faith in the truth, in the gospel. We need to be able to provide good reasons for uh, the resurrection of Jesus. We need to provide good thoughts about that and teach people about that. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if the Spirit of God is not working and people don't have faith in the gospel. We need God's help. 
We need God's help in our own lives, and we need God's help in the people that we're trying to bring to Christ. We will not talk anybody to it. We will not argue them to it. We will not present enough to them apart from faith, which is a supernatural work in us. We need God in the process. This is a spiritual work. So God has loved you. God has chose you. Thirdly, God has called you. Look there at verse 14. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might attain the glory of our Lord Jesus. God doesn't just choose you in theory. He calls you where you are. If you're a disciple today, you probably can remember all the details surrounding your salvation, at least a few of them. I can remember at seven years old. I didn't know anything about Jesus. I didn't know anything about the church. I went to vacation Bible school for a whole week, and I remember nothing at that that, at that BBS. But what I do remember is the night that the gospel was clearly shared with me. I can remember the pictures on the wall. Not that you have to remember those things, but what I do remember is that at that moment, I began to realize that there was something in me that was saying, if that person died for me, I want to give my life to them. And then that became a process of me submitting my life to Jesus and understanding that I am a sinner separated from God and without Christ there's nothing for me. A lot of times we talk about that process as God working on our hearts. That God was knocking on the door of my heart or God was pricking my heart or God was using people around me to soften my heart. We talk about that. That night, 23 and a half years ago, was the night that God called me into his family. And all of us who are Christians have a story just like that. That God entered into the darkness of your heart and began to ask, do you want to come follow me? Will you submit your life to me? That's God calling you. So God doesn't just choose you in theory. No, he comes to you where you are. And he calls you. And provides an opportunity for us to respond. Now, church, let me be very clear. Paul uses this word calling mostly to speak about calling into salvation. Calling into, into Christ and calling into the church. It is your utmost call. And nothing is higher than your call to Christ and your call to love His church. And every other calling is subject to this call. Anything that you would say I'm called to that takes you away from Christ or his church is does not line up with the Bible. And yes, God works in ways to call people and give us desires and desires to, to help serve, maybe as a as a in the hospitals or as a teacher or, or as a missionary, or maybe even as a pastor. And those desires are good and God is working in our lives. But those things are subject to the calling of Christ and his church. And may we never ever get the two mixed up. Because when we do, we're now moving away from the process that's actually going to keep us assured. That we actually have confidence in God. So let me ask again. Is there anyone here today who is tired? Is there anyone here today who isn't quite sure of God's love? Because the way Paul talks about it, look at what he has done in you already. Why would he leave you now?
God has chose us and he has called us. And God's love is the basis for our assurance. His choosing and his calling shows us just how much he loves us. And that produces security and assurance in our hearts. But it also leads to a, to a second action. Action number two, be steadfast in God's scripture. Be steadfast in God's scripture. Look at verse 15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. What would my response, maybe your response or conclusion be after just hearing those two beautiful verses that God loves you, He's chosen you, and He's called you? Maybe that God's got this in the back. Time to kick my feet up and time to relax. That would probably be my response to this. But this isn't how Paul reacts. Paul's not panicking, no, but he's not also relaxing. Paul knows that with God's action, now we must respond. If we have assurance, now we must persevere. We cannot sit back and do nothing. Why? Why can't we sit back and because God has called you. Because God has called you. And instead, Paul says the appropriate response is this. So then, he ties our response to the previous verses. In light of our assurance of what God has done and what he's doing, Paul now urges us to action. You see, the truths of God's sovereignty and human responsibility are so entangled here. that Yes, God has it in the back. God is working in you, and He is going to preserve you to the end of time whenever He returns. But also now, we have the responsibility to continue, to persevere. Yes, God is working. But may we respond to Him. So what must we do? Paul says we are to stand firm. This is the first exhortation in the letter. We must now, in light of our assurance, have a firm commitment a firm assurance so that we will persevere. It must lead us to perseverance. Far from relaxing or kicking our feet up, we must embrace what God has given to us in our salvation. And far from going to sleep, we must be ready to stand firm. This is why we must be steadfast in God's scriptures. Now, what must we be steadfast in? It's obvious, in God's word. And as we stand firm, we're called, Paul says, to hold on to the traditions that you were taught. We're to cling to, hold on to, for dear life, the traditions that we were taught. I don't know if you like roller coasters. When I was young, I liked roller coasters. Now, I see, maybe I'm really a 65-year-old with a 30-year-old's body. Because when I get on roller coasters, I start to freak out some. And so, I, what, I can remember the first time I got on a roller coaster, it was at Carolina's South Charlotte, I got on Thunder Road, first time I've ever been on one like that. And if you know about Thunder Road, it was probably built in 1960 or something, something very old, it's wooden, and somehow it has stayed together for all these years, and it is bumpy as all get up. So I'm holding on, I'm seven years old, and I'm holding on for dear life, and I get off of it, and my dad says, you don't look too good. And he's like, you're, you're telling me, right? So I was holding on. He, 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 he remembers the story. I was holding on to the edge of that cart because it doesn't go upside down. I was holding on to the bar and the edge. I was holding on for dear life. That's what Paul tells us to do with God's Word. Hold on for dear life and do not let go. Do not let go. 
Paul says that we're to hold on to the scriptures. He says this word traditions that you were taught. Now, tradition can be a confusing word. And we're not talking about traditions that are made up. Not even that tradition that the church makes up. But traditions imply a passing down. It has an authority as when we pass it down, it's going to speak to the next person we hand it down to. Or the next generation that we hand it to. Those who are handed now have to live by it. And this tradition, though, is teachings of the apostles. That's what he's talking about when he talks about teaching. Now, J.D. Dunn has uh, connected three types of tra tradition in Paul's letters. Number one is gospel tradition, which we're talking about here, concerning the central gospel message. Church tradition, different than what the church decides, and what God has given through his word and how the church should function. And number three, ethical tradition, how the church is supposed to live, which we saw in chapter four of the first letter. But here, like I said, Paul is speaking about gospel tradition. What Paul wrote about, what he gave his life to, what he spoke about. It's the central message of the gospel that's handed down. And the scriptures reveal the truths about Jesus and his gospel. And then we apply them to our lives and into the life of the church. We have the Bible that God has handed down through the apostles. And it's the foundation that God has built his church on. And so Paul speaks about tradition. He's talking about the gospel and the scriptures speak to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That from the beginning to the end, it's about Christ coming to rescue his people, to redeem his people, to give his life for his people so that they can be brought back into a relationship with their God. And now with the possibility of deception, remember last week, what was the big concern of deception? Paul makes it clear that the way we stand firm is to cling to the scriptures. When life gets hard, where do you run to? When life gets hard, where do you run to? It's really easy for us to pull our phones out and start Facebooking and tweeting and Instagramming the things that are going wrong in our lives. It's really easy to pick up a phone and start complaining to another person that this is what's going on in my life. Where do we run? What are the things that we do? Do we shut down? We must run to the scriptures and hold them dearly. Paul says this, this book, God's word is what we must hold on to. And may we not change it. May we not pick verses out that we like. May we actually hold on to it. And also, church, we must also search the scriptures together. Right? The community of God, us, is shaped by the Bible. Every week we come here, we preach from it, and the songs that we choose are based on what the Bible teaches. So it shapes us as a church family. We center our worship around it. But the church is also the protector of what we believe, of doctrine. Right? So the church is not only going to be uh, edified and built up by the Bible, then we must protect that very belief that we have about the Bible and from the Bible. There is a great danger in the individualism of our day. We must protect each other from error. We must protect each other from false doctrine. We must protect each other from 
just being confused about anything we read in the Bible. Well, how do we do that? By reading and studying and doing theology together, doing Bible stuff together. We don't come to the Bible alone and make up the things that we believe. No, we have as a church, we have a statement of faith that's been believed for thousands of years. Because when the church is formed, there's also a people formed, and that people then actually help hold the beliefs together. That's your job. He said, we hold the beliefs of the Bible together. And so maybe you're like, I don't know how to do that. Well, here's a way for you to do that. Maybe, maybe find someone that you're close to in this room and say, hey, can we read the same passage of Scripture together? And then can we just check in on each other during the week? Maybe it's every day. Maybe it's at the end of the week. Hey, we read this. What did you get out of this? What did you see? What are things that we need to believe? How should we respond? How do we apply it to our lives? Just find somebody that you can sell the Bible with. Husbands and wives, easy for you, for you to do. It doesn't have to be that. Mothers and children, easy for you to do that. Dads and children, easy for you to do that. Friends, find people that you're talking to constantly. Read the Bible together. That's how we make sure that we're not just imposing our own beliefs about the Bible. And ultimately, the Bible teaches us that God wins in the end. So that we hold up the beauty of the gospel is that God is changing you for a future that's going to happen. And God is not going to let things just go by the wayside. God will win. And what that means in your life, if you are tired today, God will give you eternal rest. He will give you eternal joy when he comes back. Or we meet him before that. So the scriptures help us persevere because it speaks to our assurance. We can be steadfast in the scriptures as we persevere. It helps motivate us together. The third action. If we're going to be motivated by our assurance to persevere, we've got to be strong in God's strength. Be strong in God's strength, not our own. Look at verse 16. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. Church, there is encouragement for you. Paul turns once again to pray for this young church. And the object of the prayer is for them to stand firm. I mean, the request for their commitment, the request for their assurance lies with God. Just in case they can't make it, Paul prays for them. Just in case they will stumble, Paul seeks God's help. In reality, Paul stacks the deck. He stacks the deck. He puts the, the cards in the deck that he needs to make sure that we actually win in the end. How? Because he goes to God. God loves you. He's called you. Now, live in that. Oh, but by the way, let me pray to him and ask him. Because this is according to his will. And notice, the prayers to the Lord Jesus and God our Father who loves us. We pray to a God who cares for us, who listens to us, who is good to us. Praying to our God who loves us should provide more assurance in the midst of any circumstances. So what's the result of God's love? Paul tells us, eternal encouragement. That is to be lifted up, to be brought along. This encouragement is eternal, which means it extends into the future. 
It's not fading, and it's not passing. This means that we can be optimistic about the future. Church, maybe the biggest thing that is a hindrance to the gospel spread, we talked about neighboring today in our book class, about being good neighbors and sharing the gospel with our neighbor. Maybe the biggest hindrance in us being good neighbors and being just people who are seeing God work in the world is some Christians are grumpy. Like they're just not happy. They're not happy people. And if I'm honest with you, I don't like not happy people at all. Like it's really not fun to be. And you, 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 don't, you think the same thing. Like if somebody's grumpy, you're gonna be, you're gonna find ways to be like, oh, you want to hang out today? No, I got something to do. I got something to do. It's much better than hang out with you, right? That's that's gonna be the conversation. So if we are grumpy Christians, then what are we actually showing about the gospel? Because if God has given us an eternal encouragement, why would we be grumpy? That convicts me. Because although I don't like grumpy people, I can find myself being grumpy. I'm being frustrated. Awful. But may the gospel eternally encourage us so that our focus is not just on the here and now, but it's also in the future. And this encouragement as a future perspective is coupled with good hope. It's not going to let us down. Be encouraged. Because your hope will last. It is good for you. And it's steady and sure. So there's encouragement, but there's also expectation. Right? What should encouragement and hope lead us to? They should strengthen us in our speech and our actions. Paul describes it in Colossians. He says that in every good uh, in every word and deed. But here he says every good work and words. Which he switches it. This means that the internal hope and encouragement must actually change how we live. It must actually produce a different kind of people. We live in the manner that the gospel demands of us. We must watch what we believe by how we live. We must watch how we believe by how we live. You've heard the phrase. Actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. If I want to know what you really believe, I'm going to watch you. I'm going to look at you. I'm going to, I'm going to examine your life. A Christian disciple must not be hypocritical. Remember, James tells us that faith takes action. We must be people who believe the right things and then let them pass from our heads into our hearts and out into our hands. That's what the gospel does in us. Christianity, if you come here today and when I asked you, are you tired? And in your heart, you were saying, yes, I am tired. Let me apologize because Christianity is not a quick fix religion. It will not make your life instantly better. But what it does do is it secures your future. And that future perspective begins to begins to wash over you and it begins to change you and you begin to live differently. Not because the circumstances are better. Because they may not change. But because your perspective is different, now you live differently. Some have talked about this sanctification, this process of becoming holy or maturing as a disciple as a, a long journey in the same direction. That's what we are here to do. 
is to help each other when we fall, when we stumble, when we're tired, to pick each other up and to take us one step further into loving Christ and loving our neighbor and to grow in a long journey in the same direction. What keeps us on this long path, though, of perseverance and assurance? Security in God's salvation? I were chosen, we're called. Steadfastness in God's scriptures? It's a priority, it's a communal effort. And strength in God's strength, it's eternal. What's the thread, though, throughout this whole, whole passage? God's love. We've been talking about it the whole time. God's love initiated our salvation. We see it described in the scriptures. And it is what our prayers for strength depend on. Our God loves us. And it seems the greatest act of love in history through Jesus on the cross. Not only can we not live this way without the gospel of Jesus, it's also something that the world needs. This is what changes people. We believe the gospel changes people and gospel people change the world. Will you trust and rest and embrace God's love today? Because if you will, you will be strengthened to persevere because of the assurance that you find in Jesus. Pray with me. Good and gracious and holy God, you are loving you are kind to us. Many of us this morning walked into this room having sinned this morning. But your strength in the gospel now empowers us to live differently, to hold on to, to press on, to persevere in life's troubles. God, I pray that your love in the gospel would assure us so that our lives may be different, so that we may not change the things in our lives that are around us, but change how we live in light of the eternal and good hope that we have. Would we trust you today? I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs>